Well, this morning we find ourselves continuing through our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 and 17. Uh, so you can turn there if you like. Um, before we, we, we read, before we uh, begin our time of preaching here, uh, let's pray uh, for uh, God's blessing to be upon us as we, as we hear and as it's uh, being spoken here by myself. Lord God, uh, we approach you uh, with expectancy. Uh, we come and we, we need to hear from you. We thank you that you have given us your word. A word that was uh, inspired by your spirit and written down by uh, by human hands, but yet is very much your word because it comes from your spirit. It was, although it was was transcribed, written down 2,000 years ago, it is still just as relevant for us as it is right now. Or, uh, right now. And so we pray that in this time, you would be at work and showing us its relevance. That the human condition, the human heart, hasn't changed over the generations. You have not changed also over the generations, and your promises have not. And so in this time... Give us ears to hear and train us in righteousness and build up our faith so that we would see Jesus more beautiful and more better than he was before. We pray this in his name. Amen. Right, Mark, this is Mark uh, chapter 2, verses 13 and 17. Pay careful attention because this is the word of God. And Jesus went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. There's an, an anecdotal story of, uh, describing a man who lived in a small cabin for years in the Yosemite Valley. And every morning he would wake up and he would see the sun illumining Half Dome and then stretching its light up uh, El Capitan, shining and streaming through Yosemite Falls and Bridalvale Falls as he stood there next to the Merced River bubbling along. And he would drink his coffee every, every morning and take in this view and be in awe. But over time, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, he became overly accustomed to the scenery that was all around him. And the extraordinary nature of that place and that moment just simply became a given. And he was no longer moved over time as he once was. And we can potentially run into the same thing when we hear these words, Jesus calls sinners, or Jesus saves sinners. 
I'm not suggesting that we limit its usage because they are beautiful words, words that we need to hear all the time. But like someone who's so used, though, to living in an idyllic place that they become overly familiar and overly accustomed to the beauty all around them, we also can become overly accustomed to the wonder and the beauty of those words. Jesus saves sinners can become words that we use without without considering their power or the truth at the heart of them. And we need to have it stun us once more and awaken us back to the beautiful power of those words. Jesus calls sinners. The word sinner might bring up various baggage for us. What does it mean to be a sinner? Is that some antiquated idea? Is it old language? I mean, after all, the, the idea of sin doesn't necessarily mesh well into our common therapeutic categories that are used to interpret the world. Because it implies that there's something wrong with us, that there's something dreadful, and there's something moral. And it's used a lot of times to draw a line between certain people, between sinners and the holy, or oftentimes those who are holier than thou. And so as we think about what does it mean to be a sinner, what does it mean for sin, let's start here. This is a Presbyterian congregation here. And as a Presbyterian congregation, our doctrinal beliefs are summarized in the Westminster Confession and Catechism. And Westminster Shorter Shorter Catechism, question 14, asks, what is sin? And the answer it gives is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And that's just simply mid-17th century language that says this. Sin is any of our failures to do what God says or any of the ways that we do what God's law tells us that we aren't to do. So we either do too little, we don't live up to it, or we misdirect what we do. So why is this so important? Why does it matter for us as 21st century Westerners, even if we've been raised in the faith? What does it matter for us as people who might be skeptical of this concept of sin? What does it mean for us, for those who have had sin perhaps even used as a way to justify abuse and harm that's been done to us? This isn't an antiquated idea because Jesus saw it as important. And he used these words in these categories. He says here, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, it matters for, a mul- for multiple reasons. It matters because of the holiness of God, uh, because it affects our understanding of humanity. But here's one that we're going to think about right now. Sin disrupts God's good order for life and for flourishing. Right? We often look at rules and laws as constraining. But we fail to see that there can be joy and freedom in them if they're in our best interest. God doesn't set laws arbitrarily just because this is how he wants things. He does so because his desire for humanity and for his creation is to flourish in goodness. And society is best ordered for flourishing when his laws for how we live and interact together are followed. His laws stem from his goodness. And then we are best ordered as people when the whole of our lives, body and spirit, are in alignment with God. And that we serve and we know him alone in the ways that he has revealed to us. Because God himself is the highest good. 
He's the fount of all good things. And so knowing him and loving him is flourishing. And people lovingly knowing one another in the light of God's blessing is communal flourishing. So by failing to uphold God's law or by going against it, it disrupts the peace and the goodness that he has intended for us. All right, sin is disruption. It's living misaligned to God's intent for our flourishing. It automatically places my own desires for life and my concept of flourishing in place of God's. I become the one who determines the highest good. And our determinations are not only tainted with our own selfishness, but are inevitably narrow and short-sighted. And that means people suffer. Sometimes that happens on large scales, but most frequently and most commonly, it happens in our everyday moments. The sadness or the brokenness that we experience by others from their selfishness is also the sadness and the brokenness that others experience because of our selfishness. Because in that moment, our wills determine what's the better good. It's ourselves at the expense of others. And it comes out in our actions, in our words, in our attitudes, anything that seeks after ourselves. And none of this here is even to mention the breach, though, that this opens up between us and God. Uh, Romans 5 says that we are anything naturally but friends with God, but we're actually enemies because of the chasm that we've ripped open to him in, in his holiness and because we've disrupted the flourishing that he desires in the world. Now, my boys love to build with Legos, uh, Play-Doh, etc. They love the things that they make. But what gets them unconsolably upset is when their little sister comes in and wrecks what they've made. Now, when we disrupt the peace of the creation that God has made, he gets upset. But not as a little boy hollering at his sister but as the good and holy God who is livid that his beautiful order is broken and the people bearing his image fail to experience the goodness that he has intended. So when we think about and talk about sin and sinners, these are just some of the categories that we need to think about. It's seriousness. It's serious here. It's never just a personal matter. But the good news, though, that we have is that for as serious as sin is, Jesus came as the friend of sinners. And though we're not friends, though, naturally, we're actually at odds. But his heart is for sinners to be reconciled to God and to remove that which alienates us from him. And as we see in our passage this morning, he calls sinners. That's taken us a little bit to get warmed up here, but we're going to look at three aspects of his call to sinners. He calls, first of all, sinners to himself. He calls sinners into discipleship. And he calls sinners into fellowship. Okay? So, first of all, Jesus calls sinners to himself. With these categories of sin in mind here in our text, we have a tax collector. We actually are going to have many tax collectors. Uh, but one in particular here, and sinners. Now, in this day here, tax collectors were despised and hated people as political sellouts and as thieves. As Palestine and the Jewish people at this time were under Roman occupation, the empire needed taxes collected to keep it all going. And so they employed locals to do the work. 
which meant that tax collectors were seen as, first of all, betraying their own countrymen and working for their foreign oppressors. But the job meant, though, that you could turn a huge personal profit by using the position to your advantage. I mean, in a real way, it was leveraging an opportunity to steal from others. And if you were going to be shunned by society because of political motivations, then you might as well get rich off the whole thing. The life of a tax collector was motivated by wealth as the highest good, even at the expense of others. But then, though, we have here also sinners, it says. Sinners who, in this time here, were the religious outcasts and deviants. That's what it referred to here. Now, consider that this time here, it was a, an overwhelmingly religious society. Yet there were a, min a minority of people who wanted nothing to do with religious morality and, or, or the, the rules. They didn't care much for the things of God, and they were skeptical. But instead... They lived life according to their own terms and their own principles. And because they didn't conform morally or religiously, then they too were sent to the fringes of society. And in both of these cases, there are people who put themselves at odds with society and with God because they chased after their own desires. People who had abandoned God and cast away his good laws and his rule. And they went after their own ways of living even as they destroyed the peace and the flourishing of others because of their insistence to live according to their own desires. There were people who were rejected and who were cast aside by others because of their own decisions and their ways of living. And that they were lonely and they were isolated and they were put on a lower tier on the morality and the acceptance scale. I mean, really, they were people just like us. Even as we've caused others to suffer by our words and our actions. And we may have known the gulf of alienation between us and God. And we may have experienced the shame as well. Or known the, the dissatisfaction from replacing God as the highest good with whatever else it is that we want to put in his place. Or ourselves having experienced the rejection that our decisions, that our lifestyles or our actions have brought from others, and we've known the shame or the resentment of those who we consider holier than thou. And yet, Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to himself, he says. Alongside the holy wrath of God for sin, though, also comes the mercy of God incarnate. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in mercy towards sinners and called them in a restored relationship. But a mercy that can't be taken lightly. It's a mercy that comes at his own expense. A mercy that took Jesus to the cross in the place of sinners. A reconciling mercy for all the sin which has put us at odds with God was laid on Jesus Christ, the Son. So that in him now, we can be friends of God instead of enemies of God. And we consider here that Jesus calls sinners, as we think about this, this glorious truth, we run the risk, though, of making a separate class of people, people who we label as sinners. I think CVP is an inviting church. It's one where I see among us the beauty that Jesus came to save sinners, and we welcome them. 
But the way that we speak sometimes can reveal this subtle differentiation of how we view others, one that introduces almost a sort of classification. The phrase, Jesus calls sinners and we welcome sinners, isn't the same as saying Jesus calls sinners and we welcome fellow sinners. Talking about sinners without viewing ourselves as fellow sinners puts a wall, albeit unintentionally, but it puts a wall between us and the sinful solidarity that we share with everyone else. It's putting the tax collector and the religious deviant on the fringes and then expressing wonder that Jesus would save them while forgetting that we too are fellow sinners along with them. And it's a wonder that Jesus would save us. See, there aren't two classes of sinners. There's not the acceptable sinner and then the real sinner. You're either one or the other. And let's just be honest with ourselves. The bar for entry into the kingdom of God, which Jesus is, is calling here sinners, is simultaneously high and low. It's a high bar because it requires humility. You have to see yourself properly in this way as a sinner. And most people, myself included, don't always like to see the ugly truth or the full depth of that. But it's also a low bar, thank God. Because sinners come at no cost to themselves. Only by the work of Jesus, by grace you have been saved through faith so that no one can boast. And Jesus makes that known to these indignant Pharisees who question him on why he was keeping such company. He says he came to call those who are sick with their own sin, not those who are ignorant of their problem. So the church is a hospital for sinners. It's a place where we come sick with our sins, already knowing the diagnosis that we are in need of healing. And then we come to receive the cure from Jesus over and over, week after week. This is the place where the great physician does his work, where he applies the healing medicine of his cross and curing us the work that he has done, and dressing our wounds in, the righteousness for, in his righteousness for sinners. A hospital isn't a place where people who think they're healthy hang out. It's a place where sick, desperate people go to get well. And that's part of what the church is. It's not a collection of people who think that they're okay, but it's a, where people who, knew their, who know their spiritual issues go to. Because that's the only place where they can come and get, they can get the cure. It's the mercy of Jesus to forgive them and to transform their lives. And when the church ceases to be a welcome harbor for sinners, then what makes it distinct, the presence of Christ and his grace is gone. But it's not just a hospital. It's also a rehab center. It's a rehab center for recovering Pharisees. We recognize that we are saved by grace. We've come to take hold of Christ by faith and to live out a life of obedience to his mercy. But there's still something, though, that slips in our hearts or our minds. We're people who are hardwired for works, and it's so easy for us to fall back into the old patterns that we've sworn off. We never truly kick the habit. We still have a taste for the pride and the exhilaration that religious-mindedness or pharisaicalism gives. Because for a moment, we feel normal. Or at least we feel like we're actually healthy or okay. 
But the church as a rehab center is where we encounter Jesus yet again. And it's where those of us who have indulged our inner pharisaical desires can come back and be reminded again that I really don't have much of my own to stand on. And to once again come back to receive the mercy and the holiness that I need just as much as the sinner and the tax collector do. Jesus calls sinners to himself. But we also have second, though, Jesus calls sinners into discipleship. We've kind of got this broad overview of the passage of what's going on, but let's start to look a little bit closer at a couple things. We have Levi the tax collector sitting at his tax booth. Now, Levi is also known as Matthew, uh, the, the disciple and apostle Matthew, the one who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Uh, the story's in, in his gospel, and he has his name in there. Uh, Levi was probably just another name that he had. But again, here we have Levi, a tax collector, a despised person in the eyes of everyone, especially because he was getting wealthy at the expense of his brothers. He's a sellout and a thief. And yet, Jesus stops and he looks at him and he says, follow me. This call is to give up everything that he has and all of who he is for the sake of Jesus. And although he was a despised man, I think that would have been more difficult than you'd think. He knew the reality of the occupation that he chose going in, and he knew everything that would come along with it. He was a hated man, but hey, at least he had plenty of money. And that had to have been the motivating factor for him uh, to become a tax collector. You would give up all your social standing, all social value. But who needs friends when you've got money, right? And giving up his tax booth would mean giving up his job. But it wasn't like he was just expecting to be welcomed back into society. Once a traitor and a thief, always a traitor and a thief. As much as we might think. Leaving his tax collector occupation to follow Jesus wasn't easy. But he does. He gets up and he follows. Why? I'm not sure if we can figure out one exact reason here from the text. I'm not sure we could ascertain just an exact one. But here, though, I think is what it suggests. First of all, there was something in Jesus' call that caused him to leave everything all right, undoubtedly, he knew about Jesus. He knew who he was. Jesus was the buzz going around Galilee. And there he is sitting on the side of the road hearing all the news that's going by. He knows who Jesus is. So was the fact that this man from God, in fact, the son of God taking on flesh, what was it here in the fact that, that he took interest in Levi? Was it something about his voice? Was it a firmness and a command that was present in his call Yet it's at the same time with this compassion and gentleness and love. The following Jesus is a serious matter. There is weight in understanding his call and what discipleship entails. It means leaving everything for him. Taking on a new master who doesn't split allegiances. Yet as a master, he's also gentle and he's full of love. He's not harsh, but he's a good shepherd who cares for his sheep. And he lays his life down for them. I think there is something powerful and compelling in Jesus' voice. And I think there is also a, po uh, a power in his call that shot light into his darkness. And it allowed him to see and it filled his heart full of love. 
See, this is the power and the effectual nature of Jesus' call on display in the scriptures. That when he calls, he does so with power to ignite the human heart and his people respond. His call here, brought together with his words, with the Spirit's warmth, bring life and joy where before him there is nothing but deadness and numbness. And as he received Jesus' call, there was something that he recognized. There was something that he saw more compelling and more beautiful in Jesus than he had or he had known in his, in his previous life. Now, had he already at this point been experiencing a dissatisfaction in the life that he had? Right? Did the silver and the money no longer gleam as it had before or bring the same joy as it once had promised? There are so many times that we feel that same thing when those, those things that have drew our affections lose their appeal. It's either not enough or we look to the next thing or we just don't care as much as we used to because we see how ultimately unsatisfying it is ultimately. And so how many people at the end of their lives are full of regret because they recognize that what they gave everything to really just doesn't matter in the end. Jesus was calling Levi to something better. He was calling him into a life beyond the dreams and the wealth that he had into something more compelling. As he says, follow me, he invites him into something more grand than he could ever imagine. A life full of depth and of meaning as we know God and as we find our true selves in him. And in serving him and his kingdom that is infinitely more profound than any of our own hopes or dreams. His call to sinners and to tax collectors is to work for a kingdom of lasting beauty and eternal grandeur. Something more incredible and lasting than just the few generations that really only a handful of people can build if they're lucky. Following Jesus is following and knowing and serving the eternal and living God of the universe who is working to redeem the fallen nature in all things. And this call requires a response for us. You can't admire his beauty from afar or passively, but are called, though, to respond and to follow. To leave everything behind for the sake of Jesus, yet gain everything in him. It's a response of faith. Leaving everything requires faith, doesn't it? And it's a faith that entails obedience to cherish and to pursue the beauty of Christ and not merely to recognize it. Our hearts need to be mastered by a new affection. Thomas Chalmers, a 19th century Scottish minister, had a famous sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he suggests that in order to displace a love of the world in our hearts, we need beauty. And what we need is a beauty that's better and more compelling than what's otherwise offered to us. It's not merely enough to be shown the vanity of our old ways of life or of the world. Because then what happens is it creates a vacuum in our hearts which will inevitably be filled up by some other fleeting idea. What we need instead is to be given something much more beautiful and compelling... A new affection to expel our old desires. And in this old sermon he writes this. If the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object is to fasten it in positive love to another, then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, 
but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter, that all old things are to be done away, and all new things, or and all things are to become new. And so let me ask you, do you see anything compelling and beautiful in Jesus? In the words of Chalmers, do you see the worth and excellence of Christ? This is what I see. I see the only sense of, of hope and uh, amid the darkness of the world because Christ has risen from the grave. And that must compel me. It's the only thing that can com compel me to continue to go forward and forge ahead through the veil of tears and shadow in which we live. I see the wonder of the eternal God, the eternal triune God, as the Father would send His Son into the world. And the Son would do so willingly to save sinners. And the Spirit then would, would draw me into this divine relationship that I get to now share between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I see that same God, that self-giving God, enacting His redemptive story to make all things new. And having all the details worked out before the foundation of the world. And graciously drawing me into a story that's way bigger than any other story or narrative that I could create for my own life. A story that affirms my deepest longings, but yet at the same time challenges my dreams by promising something even better. Friends, what do you see when you look at Jesus? What do you see when you look at God? Do you look at God through this lens of the incredible beauty of Christ? Jesus calls sinners to himself. Jesus calls sinners into discipleship. But Jesus also, third, calls sinners into fellowship. See, when he calls, there's a relationality involved. He doesn't only call sinners and tax collectors to himself or to follow, but also to be in fellowship with him. He is the friend of sinners. Because next here we see Jesus at a table that's filled with tax collectors and sinners. And this is likely at Levi's house and around a table that he's prepared for guests. You can think of this as a conversion party. And who else does Levi invite, along with Jesus, but also all of his old tax collector friends and sinners? But this is what Jesus would have been accustomed to because we read that there were many tax collectors and many sinners who were following after him. And now imagine what this dinner table must have been like here. How do you imagine Jesus to have been sitting at this table amongst those religious and social deviants? Do you think he was sitting there quiet, just eating in silence? Do you think he was a stoic? Do you think he looked uncomfortable? I don't think so. Because they too, just like Levi, found something compelling about Jesus. I think Jesus would have been the most engaging, joyful person sitting at that table. Tell me about yourself. Did you try the wine? Oh, I haven't got that to that course yet. I can't wait, but fill your plate with this. Oh, I'm so glad to be eating here with you and celebrating with you. Isn't God's grace, isn't the grace of our Father as we see with, Matt, with uh, Levi here, isn't it so incredible? See, it was the sinners who came to Jesus. They wanted to be with him, and he welcomed them with joy. Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Now, when we eat with someone, when we share a meal, 
When we gather around a table with another, it's a sign of fellowship, of wanting to know them and opening ourselves up with a willingness to know them um, or, or to be known by them. When we go out to dinner with someone, when we share a cup of coffee, when we come together at a table, it's an expression of relationship or at least a desire to have relationship. In one sense, there's an identification that happens. As we sit and we eat with our elbows at the table, we're here together. And I want to be with you here because I value this time. There's nothing particularly attractive about eating, but we're willing to open ourselves up and drop our guards in that moment as we eat and we drink with another. And that's just not a modern idea. And not only do people worldwide uh, look at a shared table in this way, but people throughout history have looked at the, the table in this way. And actually there have been some cultures where there's been, that's been emphasized even more than we do. And the culture in which Jesus lived was one of those. You took great care with those whom you ate because it was a signal of friendship and unity. The only reason that you dined with a rival was in order to make peace. So what was Jesus saying by his actions as he ate with sinners? There was welcome. There was interest. There was the forming of relationship. But also, I'm coming to make peace with you. We're eating at this table. We're celebrating and we're dining together because I'm making peace with sinners. So let's celebrate. And as we come to Jesus as sinners, there is celebration. He doesn't hold back. Instead, he brings us to a table of welcome and joy. He sits us down and he says, let's eat. And God the Father, as we heard in our assurance of grace, he scoops us up in his arms and he tells us how much he loves us and how much he's missed us and that this table is for us. And we're brought then into the bonds of love that the Father and the Son have for each other, roped into the loving embrace by the Spirit. And friends, if that doesn't give us cause for celebration, then I don't know what does. This is a family dinner of sinners who are saved by grace through faith in Christ, sitting at a table that's hosted by a God who smiles at us. But there's something else, though, for us to note about this dinner. The description is here that they were reclining at table. There were different settings or ways that you would come to a meal, depending on the formality of it. Sometimes like a basic meal, you might, you might sit. But for special meals, for feasts, for celebratory dinners, something more formal or occasional, you would recline on a rug at a low table. And so as Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, he's reclining at table with them. He isn't just having lunch. He's having a feast with them. And with a special detail about a feast, Mark, the author, is drawing our minds to another feast with Jesus. A feast that's full of celebration and joy. In fact, a feast that all our other human feasts are just simply a shadow of. That's the banquet table of the Messiah. The wedding supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation 19 earlier. It's a table where Jesus himself is seated and where all of his people will be seated there with him, feasting and celebrating with the finest food and the, the best wine that we've ever seen. And who will be there at the table? Not the righteous, not those who think that they're righteous. Jesus says that sinners will be there. 
but sinners who are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Sinners who are made holy in Him by the cross that He took for us. Sinners whose filthy rags have been taken away and placed upon Jesus in His death, but who are now wearing the finest wedding clothes of Jesus Christ's righteousness. And though we be sinners now, we will be clothed in the garb of saints someday. And all to the praise and glory of Jesus who calls and saves sinners. Friends, Jesus is calling you this morning too. How will you respond? If you've been holding yourself back from Jesus, and he's the friend who welcomes and who invites you to come and to take a seat with him at this table. And so cast aside the, the rags that you've clung to and come take your seat. He pulls the, the chair back and he says, welcome. Celebrate the mercy of God for undeserving sinners as we are about to partake in the appetizers of that supper of the lamb here. And we are about to be reminded that the dinner in full is on its way as we come to the table right here. Let's pray. Lord God, these words that sometimes may become cliche to us, Jesus saves sinners, or Jesus is the friend of sinners, as we hear them, would they become fresh to us again this morning? Would they be life-giving? And would we give you thanks to the Lamb who was slain for us so that we might take a seat at that table someday. We thank you that Jesus didn't just sit at the tables with sinners and tax collectors in our text, but that he even now continues to do so and welcomes us to come. And we need to see ourselves rightly. We pray that we would see ourselves rightly so that we would flee to him we pray that then that you would give us a new affection for his beauty. That he would become more beautiful to us than anything else, than any of our other longings, that we would see them in him. And to know him as he knows us, Lord, would this encompass our whole lives? And would our lives then take on a note of celebration, even in the midst of trial or difficulty, we can still rejoice because Jesus Christ welcomes me at his table. And so as we come now to a foretaste of that as we come here to, to, to eat from the bread and wine of Jesus. We ask that you would put joy in our hearts as we come to him once more. We pray this in his name.